Church family, we're going to dive right in this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I invite you to take it out. And we are back in the book of Philippians. And we're going to actually pick up in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, and then work backwards, uh, work a little differently this morning. And as you're getting your Bible and turning there to Philippians 4, let me just pose uh, this question. How do we as believers stand firm in Christ in the midst of such a twisted and broken and hostile culture and world? A real simple question. How do we stand firm when there is so much twisting of truth, when there are so many opinions, when there seems to be an ever-rising aspect of hostility? And what we'll find today in the passage is exactly how, how we do that. Now, as we come back to Philippians, let me remind us where we've been. The immediate context right before we, where we find ourselves today is Paul answering a question that the church has sent to him via Epaphroditus, their messenger. They've asked a question regarding those who would teach that you need a righteousness that's based on your own works and effort plus Jesus. You need Jesus plus this work, Jesus plus these things. And Paul answers their question emphatically and says that is false. There is one righteousness, the righteousness that comes by the faithfulness of Christ from God and is received through faith. And that is the righteousness in which we want to be found because it is in that righteousness that we are able to know him. And Paul lays out his grand ambition. It is to know Jesus completely, totally, fully. And what, what that looks like in his life is to know and experience the power of Christ's resurrection in his life. It's to experience and know the fellowship and intimacy of suffering with Christ. It's to, to undergo the process of conformity by the hand of God to the death of Christ. And it's ultimately found in attaining the resurrection of the dead. And if that sounds like a tall and, and great aspiration, Paul says, don't worry. Not even I have arrived there. But this is what I do. I don't claim perfect perfection, but what I do is this. I press on. I, I keep moving deliberately and quickly to that goal of knowing Christ and I do it by forgiving what lies behind, the good, the bad, the ugly, and straining and pressing and stretching forward like a runner to the finish line to Christ. And he says, this attitude, where we left two weeks ago, this is the attitude that if we are to be mature, we must possess this attitude. That's what's gone on in the passage. So look with me, chapter 4, verse 1. It's going to make more sense for us to drop there and then walk back through the rest of chapter 3. Look what it says. It says, therefore... My beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long with an intense affection to see, you are my joy and crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. In this way, hold your ground in firm conviction of belief. In this way, be daily, habitually, moment by moment, present tense, always standing your ground. In this way, be actively choosing to stand your ground. In this way, I'm not suggesting you stand your ground. It is God's divine command that you stand your ground that you hold firm. And understand for the church in Philippi, remember the context of where they are and what Paul writes to them there. 
The city of Philippians is a colony, uh, the city of Philippi is a colony of Rome. They have been granted the rights of Roman citizenship. Even the architecture and design of the city was modeled after Rome. They were to be a mini Rome in the east, a promoter of all that is good and Roman. The worship of the emperor as savior and lord would have been high when they would bring that cart, uh, they, they would bring this cart of emperor worship into towns and you would go in and, and, and pay the tax and, and offer that incense offering and declare that Caesar is lord, he is, he is deity, he is savior. They would bring that cart into town. They would be pro the Roman pantheon. We know from the book of Acts that this city was hostile to Paul and the early believers. This is not a place that would have viewed Christianity with kindness or favor. The pressure the Philippians face to capitulate to what is popular and, and commonly held, both in terms of ethics and, and morals and religion and culture, would have been great. The hurt of being a Philippian believer and being slandered and misrepresented by false accusations would have been real. The fear of the disapproval of all of the society around you would certainly be present. And in the midst of that, Paul says, stand firm in this way. But maybe you saw, and if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, then you know we even made the joke. There's one joke that if you go to seminary and take a hermeneutics class or a how to study the Bible class, there's always one joke every professor always throws out, and you just kind of roll your eyes and go with it, which is, anytime you see a therefore, you ask what it's there for. Well, look, therefore, in this way, or, or literally, therefore, thus stand firm. Well, there's the command, there's the call, there's the point of the sermon today, stand firm, but how do we do that? Well, let's back up because he says, therefore, in light of what's preceded, in this way, stand firm. Well, go back with me, chapter 3, verse 15. Look what he says. He says, let us therefore, as many are as mature, have this attitude. The first way that you and I are going to stand firm is by, by holding to the attitude of maturity. This was what the sermon two weeks ago was, so I'm not going to belabor the point today. But the attitude of maturity is not an attitude that constantly looks over your shoulder at your own mess-ups, your own disappointments, your own hurts, where other people are. It is the attitude that says, the aim of the race I run is to know Jesus. And I will not let any discouragement, fear, failure, or anything in the past haunt me. Rather, I have locked my eyes on Christ and I am straining forward. This is the attitude of the mature believer. Pressing on. So how do we stand firm? We're going to have to do it by holding the right attitude, the attitude of the mature, but we go on. And if in anything you have a different attitude, literally if in anything you are consistently choosing to think differently, God will reveal this. God will make plain what is hidden to you. That's an interesting little verse. If, if in anything, well, what is anything? Well, anything is not what he was just talking about. What he was just talking about is, is the final part of his answer to their question. But he goes beyond that and says, Philippians, I, I don't know what other things you may be facing, what other questions, what other things you may be seeing, but if in anything, if there is anything in which you are consistently off base in the way you are thinking and believing, the God who will not stop and fail to finish what he started, Philippians 1.6, is the same God 
Who will convict and reveal those things to you? Whatever those things may be. Well, what does it mean that God reveals? It's a word, a revelation. God, God makes known what is hidden or secret. And here's what you and I need to understand today as we walk through this in the, next, in the next part of the verse. What Paul means here is not that God reveals something new that he's never said before. Scripture's clear, Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is the final revelation of God. There is no more revelation so all the other faiths and their holy books that try to incorporate the Bible that say, uh, like the Book of Mormon or the Quran or, or other texts that, that say things contrary to Scripture but try to say that Scripture's just one of many in the order, false. Amen. False. God said Jesus is it. This is the final revelation and all of the written word testifies to the living word, Jesus Christ. So it's not that God is revealing something new, it's that God is revealing what is true. Revelation here, then what God is revealing is a correct understanding of God through a right understanding of his word, which is brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. It's not something new, but a right understanding of what is true. This is why Paul prays for the Ephesians, that God would grant them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That they would be able to know and apprehend clearly who God is, how God acts, and that they would have the wisdom to then live faithfully in light of that. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're off in anything, God will correct, God will show, God will expose where you are off to the truth. How? How does God do that in our lives, church family? Via the Holy Spirit. Now, you don't have to turn there, but I'll give you the references. John 15, 26, Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. Later on in John 16, he says, The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. He won't speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will glorify me, being Jesus, for he will take what is mine and disclose it to you. How does God reveal where you and I are off? It is through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who, if you and I are in Christ by grace through faith, has sealed us permanently and indwells us. And part of what he does is convict us when we are off. Because you see, you and I could be off on things that we know we're off on. Like I could see you being off on something. You could say, well, you're off on something. It doesn't line up. But there's also things you and I may be thinking off on that no other person can see but God the Spirit who lives within. And how does the Holy Spirit convict? Well, there's this he says it right there, brings to remembrance everything I have said, speaks what I have said. Think of Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce the division between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, before the eyes of whom all things are laid bare. How does the Holy Spirit primarily convict you and I? Through the use of the word. Through the use of the word. So if this is what God does, if, if we're going to stand firm, we have to heed the Holy Spirit's conviction. We have to heed the Holy Spirit's conviction, which means practically, church family, you and I have to learn how to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
That means you and I have to learn how to, how to sense and, 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 and receive that conviction when the Spirit says you are, you are off here, when the Spirit brings to remembrance the Word. Maybe privately as, as we're praying, God reminds us of the Scripture that we see, mm, I'm not in line there. Maybe, maybe as we're in worship and the Word is preached or you're in a small group and the, and, and the Word is taught and discussed, all of a sudden you, you know you read that verse and you can just sense the Spirit pointing that verse right at you and you know, I'm not in line with that truth. We have to be sensitive to that conviction because here's the reality, church family. The Lord will convict you and I, but you and I have a responsibility to respond. Amen. The Lord will convict us but he won't make us follow. You and I possess the ability to grieve and to quench the spirit. Both are used, used in scripture, but you and I also possess the ability to confess our sins to him who is faithful and true to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Amen. You and I have a responsibility to be sensitive to the spirit and to respond to the spirit and understand church family that when we speak of the spirit's conviction, we are not speaking of only some massive light from the sky blinding you and you fall to the ground and hear an audible voice you're like, wow, I get it. I've really... The primary way the Holy Spirit speaks to us is through the word. So if we're going to stand firm, we have to heed his conviction, but it leads us right to the second. Look at verse 16. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have obtained. Let us keep living. That word living it's actually an, an imperative. It's an infinitive used as an imperative. It's a command, and it's the idea to agree with something and walk in line with that standard. It is a military word that refers to marching in the correct place in battle order. It's to know your place, to know your position, and to stand in light of that standard. So he says, look, if you're going to stand firm... You're going to do it by being sensitive to the Spirit's conviction, but you're also going to do it by walking in accordance with the, that standard we have obtained. Well, what, is, what is that standard that we have obtained? Well, what it's not is some kind of relativistic view of, of Scripture. What it's not is simply, well, live in line with what you know. Here's what I mean by that. It's, well, to the, to the Bible drill Awana champion, you know a lot of Scripture, so there's a lot of stuff you have to live in line with. But me over here, who's, who's not really read a lot of Scripture, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. Ignorance is bliss, so I'll choose to stay ignorant. We're not talking about live in light of how much you know, nor are we talking about some kind of uh, individual Maturity issue. Live in light of how mature you are. Notice he says, let us keep living to the same standard we have obtained. This is something that is common and binding on all of us. It's not subjective based on you and I's maturity. Not only that, but it's not something subjective. It doesn't say by keep living by the standard to which you have thought. It says by that by that same standard, by that, there is something objective. There is a clear, objective standard. What is the standard? Maybe the better question is, who is the standard? The standard is Christ, whose, per whose person and work is revealed by the gospel message and is recorded in the written word. 
So what is, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, if you and I are going to stand firm, we must do it by walking in accordance with the word. Regardless of anything is what he says. Here's my answer to your original question. Hold the attitude of maturity. If there's anything you're off in, heed the conviction of the Spirit. But in everything and every way, hold your life. Walk in line. Set yourself in correct order with the Word. Amen. Church family, how, how, how do you and I stand firm in the midst of a culture where truth is being twisted? It's not by knowing how to untwist every false truth. It's by knowing the truth. You don't have to study every counterfeit bill to know what's a counterfeit. Just know the real thing perfectly, and you'll know every counterfeit. We stand in light with the Word. We live in light of the Word. The Word is, is the lens through which we see everything, not something we study through our own subjective lens. So how do we do this practically, church family? Well, there's no way for you and I to live by the standard of the Word if you don't know the word. It means practically, church family, we must know the word rightly. It means we must know the living word, Jesus truly. You can't submit yourself to the word if you're not actually in Christ. You've got to be saved. But then once we're saved and we're in right relationship with the living word, it means we've got to actually be in his written word. We've got to be in it. We've got to be reading it and, and meditating on it, chewing it, keeping it on our lips, taking our thoughts captive to it. This is why when, on the Wednesday nights study, Bible studies we've been doing, we're talking about developing a biblical worldview. We don't jump to any other subject before we jump to scripture. Because if we don't understand the, the importance and, and, the, and the sufficiency and the necessity of the written word and how to actually open our Bibles and actually read and understand and meet with the Lord, we will not be able to stand. And I fear that the reason so many who profess Christ and even many who may in fact be in Christ continue to capitulate and fall to whims of culture is because we are so inept with the word. We as believers are starving for the Word of God, and we've starved ourselves so long we're not even aware of how deep the hunger is. We've got to be in it. It means we've got to observe and interpret and apply correctly and rightly, but it's not just being in it. We've got to believe the Word truthfully, church family. It means we believe what He says, how He says it, because it's Him who says it. We believe what he says, how he says it, because it is God himself who says it. We've got to be in the word. We've got to believe the word truthfully, and we've got to obey the word faithfully. What does it mean to come in line? It means we're in the word. It means we believe the word. It means we follow, we follow the word, and then all of those things are, are inherently tied together. You won't follow the word if you're not in the word, but you also won't follow the word if you don't actually believe it. Church family, if we're going to stand firm in the midst of a hostile culture, the only way is by falling in line under that standard to which you and I have attained and arrived, that standard of Christ as attested by the gospel message as recorded perfectly in the written word. Amen. But Paul goes on. Brothers, 
Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. He says, join in following. It's an interesting little word, which literally means all of you together as one people in, in harmony and unity fall in line and imitate my example. Imitate the way you see me living and moving and breathing and thinking. And by the way, it's a command there, not a suggestion. It's a command. And then the second command is observe. Observe. It's a word that means to, to carefully fix your attention upon, to mark and to follow. It means it describes a, a keen, deliberate, and intense observation. It's not casual. It's not flippant. It, it sets standards in which to judge. It says observe those who walk according to the same pattern that you have in us. Paul says, look, if, if, if you're going to stand firm, you're going to have to do it by, by following the right examples, by, by imitating the right examples. And what Paul is, is not saying here is understand this. This is not the first century version of Paul asking for more people to subscribe and hit the like button. And there's like five young people that understand that. Or if you watch the podcast, subscribe, subscribe, right? This is not Paul saying, I need more followers. I need, I need more people to build my, my influence. That's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying out of arrogance. Arrogance would be, hey, follow me because I am the, I am the example of Christ to the earth. It's not. He says, yes, follow my example. And he says, observe those, the pattern you have in us. And remember, he's already specified other examples in Philippians. Timothy, Epaphroditus. He said, those who walk in accordance, and notice, it's not just follow us, it's follow us who walk according to the pattern. That sets standard. It's why Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me just as I am an imitator of Christ. See, he says, you've got to follow the right examples, and here's why. For many walk, many are behaving, many are living, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. Their glory is in their shame, and they set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven. See, Paul says if you're going to stand firm, you've got to, to stand firm by making sure to imitate those faithful examples of, of the pattern that, that lives out citizenship in heaven well, because there are many who walk in a way that is completely and totally hostile to the cross of Christ. What do I mean hostile to the cross of Christ? Understand the cross for Paul, it is, it is the crux. It is, it is the central focus of the mission of God. It is, it is the moment where everything changes. Everything builds up to the cross. The cross happens. The resurrection takes place. The cross and the resurrection. The cross is where our sins were dealt with. The cross is where, where, where God's wrath was satisfied. The cross, the cross is the reflection of the mission of God. It's the revelation of the humility of Christ who humbled himself to death, death on a cross. It's the means through which one is reconciled to God. It's the plan of redemption through Christ. It is the clear and perfect manifestation of the love of God for the world. 
And not only that, but for those in Christ, it is the way of Christ that he calls us to follow. Take up your cross. You see, to be an enemy of the cross of Christ is to set yourself in a place where you are opposed to the mission of God, where, the, where you are opposed to the humility of Christ, where you are opposed to the reconciliation to God through the redemption through Christ. It's, it's to oppose the very place where the love of God is made clear. It's to oppose the very way. And it's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the cross is a stumbling block to some and absolute foolishness to others. But it is the wisdom of God. It's a, to salvation for those who believe. It says there are those many, many being a vast and great multitude, meaning the majority of people you look around and see, church, are enemies to the cross. They're enemies to the cross, and he tells us what their lives look like. Their end is destruction. That is, their end, the ultimate place of their arrival. If those of us in Christ, our ultimate end is maturity and glory, the end of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ is destruction. And by destruction, we don't mean they cease to exist, but we mean they receive that just punishment to which they are due. There is an eternal destruction for those who are apart from God, apart from Christ. It says their God, their, the one that they worship is their appetite. Now, we don't literally just mean what they want to eat. What we mean is these people live their lives worshiping to satisfy whatever desire they have. Whatever desire they have, this is, this is how they worship, by doing whatever makes them feel good, by listening to their heart. And church family, do we not see this everywhere in culture today? However I want, whatever and however I want to be sexually, if it makes me feel good, then it's okay. Whatever I want to watch and listen to, no matter what it shows, no matter what it says, if it makes me feel good, it's okay. Whatever I want to buy, whatever I want to attain for myself, as long as it satisfies the craving of my heart, it is good. Is that not the message of society today? And by the way, we may feel that is ratcheting up in intensity, but guess what? The message of society today is almost identical to the society of the Philippians, pound for pound whose glory is in their shame. What they mean is the things that they glory, the things that they brag about are things which are shameful. Man, flip on any form of media, news or social, you'll see that pop out right away. Who are actively, in their minds, they are actively taking their thoughts to set their thoughts on things of the earth. Their whole purpose and being is wrapped up in what can be had and attained in this world. He says, understand, church family, there are many examples you can emulate who are driven by their own passions and longings, whose end ultimately takes to a place of destruction, who glory in that which is shameful. And understand, glorying in what is shameful means you don't realize it's shameful. Because you're so caught up and driven by your own appetite. It's like the prodigal son who's so driven by his own appetite, spending all of his own money. There's a little bit where he's, who knows what kind of shameful things he's eating until he finally arrives at rock bottom. He says there's many examples that can be followed, but our citizenship is in heaven. We are not of those who take their minds and put them on all of the earthly treasures and prizes that can be had who look and see how we can attain for whatever kingdom can be, who, who are driven by what, what the checklist says 
If you've got, you know, if you're, if, you're a, if you're a good person in this world, you've got this kind of 401k and you've got this kind of job and you take this many vacation and your kids do this, then da, 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 da. So we're not the people who live like that. We are citizens of heaven. We bear the rights and responsibilities of people whose citizenship is not of this world, but of the kingdom coming. We, we, bear, we bear the pride of not being proud of just, you know, you think about this. There are people today who take pride in, the, in, their, in their nation, in their country. We see it in the Olympics. We see it all over in places. There is a pride to be had in the fact that you and I are not of this world. You and I are of Christ's kingdom if we're in Christ. And it says our citizenship is, not our citizenship will be. Our citizenship is. We are citizens of heaven. Which means when you and I are saved, we're immediately citizens of heaven. We are no longer of this world, but we are now ambassadors for his coming kingdom. We live according to a different standard. We think according to a different way. And if we're going to stand firm and live out that citizenship well, we have to be wise in who we imitate. So church family, who do we imitate? In your life, who do you pattern yourselves after? Who do you admire? Who do you respect? Do they claim Christ or not? Are they celebrities? Are they athletes? Are they business tycoons? Are they, they authors? Are they media pundits? Are they politicians? Are they someone around the office who, who has what you want? And why do we choose who we choose to imitate? Is it because what we see in that person delights us or because we feel something from, from, from the, that person? Is it based on that person's charisma or that person's influence that person's popularity, or maybe even the social expectation that we should admire that person? Is it because somehow in our own personal desires, we see something that person has and we were envious of it and so we want to be like them? Who do we imitate? Because there is a danger of imitation. All of us have, have people we hold in high regard as examples. And it's interesting, Paul's, Paul's not saying it's wrong to have people you look to as an example. He's saying you gotta make sure you choose the right ones. There's a danger because who we admire, we imitate. We will become like them. And who we imitate reveals what we admire, respect, and maybe even envy. In fact, church family, when we think of standing firm, one of the absolute greatest dangers, one of my greatest concerns for believers that, is, that are pulling believers away from a firm foundation are the people we admire on social media. It's the people on social media who can present a picturesque life that causes a discontent. It's the people on social media who can take what were once wacky theologies reserved in, in the upper ivory towers of liberal seminaries and package it in a way that makes sense to the common person. And now the average person can see their face and hear their voice. I have watched more young people drift away from the soundness and truth of the word because of those whom they seek to imitate via social media than easily any other place they could have imitated people. And I'm not trying to only harp on social media. I'm not even anti-social media, but I am saying, those of you who are students, who are young people, you better be careful who you choose to imitate. And church family, those of us who are older, who are adults, you and I have the same call. 
Young and old, we're all quick. It's interesting, we're all quick, quick to prop up any, any famous or influential person who, who remotely waves the banner of Christianity. And then they'll come out and say something theologically really wrong, and I'm not making the claim whether that person is or isn't Christian. What I can say is, Scripture says not to prop up new believers, to disciple them too, but it's all of a sudden, it's like we need people that are cool culturally who say they're Christian to somehow validate that it's okay to be Christian. Listen, we don't need that because Jesus is the Christ. I don't need someone cool to make it cool to be a Christian. The God of the universe is God. But we like to imitate. So church family, we better make sure we imitate those who walk well, those who have been habitually tested and tried and found walking purely with Christ, those who carry out the mission of God, those who walk in the humility of Christ when people are watching, but especially when no one is watching and especially when it's to people that cannot do something to prop them up. We should imitate those who carry out their salvation in fear and trembling, those who do not grumble and complain, those who seek to encourage and minister to those in need, those whose ambition is solely to know Christ truly and completely, those who live out their citizenship well, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, focused on kingdom priorities, not earth priorities, those who, when it comes to the lostness of the world, are driven to weep rather than to to bemoan and, 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 and show animosity. Did you catch that here, by the way, church family? Paul says there are many who are walking in this way. And understand, those many who are walking, whose end is destruction, who are enemies of the cross, are people who are making life difficult for those Philippian believers. They're the people who threw Paul in prison. And did you catch Paul's response? It's not anger that, that the tranquility of his life has been threatened. It is weeping. Church family, when you and I look at a lost and dying world, when you and I look at a nation that is just finally shedding its cultural churchness, we should be driven to weep if we are imitating Christ. Amen. Not just shout, well, I can't believe that lost person isn't acting like a Christian. Well, goodness, I think you got your answer right there. <laughs> who we imitate. We must imitate those who walk well. We must not imitate those who walk poorly. Listen, there are those inside the body of Christ who are not imitation worthy. Not everyone who, who is a Christian is worthy of imitation because some of us don't walk well. And there are none outside the body of Christ whose pattern of life is worthy of imitation because they do not know the king. Amen. I've gone a little long today because we got to celebrate baptism, so we'll, we'll come here to this conclusion shortly. And by the way, how exciting has it been the last couple weeks to see people follow through and, and honor Christ in baptism? That has blessed my heart deeply. And my prayer is that, church family, those baptism waters would be stirred often, and I would hope you're praying the same. So if we're going to stand firm, we've got to hold the right attitude. We've got to be sensitive to the Spirit's conviction. We've got to live in accordance to the standard of the Word. We've got to, be, to, to wisely choose 
faithful citizens of heaven, people who live out the citizenship of heaven well as our examples. But there's one last aspect. Notice what it says, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. It's interesting, Paul uses that word, we, we eagerly await. It's a word that Paul only uses to describe how we should be towards the Lord's return. We eagerly await. There is an eagerness, a longing that looks for the return of our Savior. Now, here's a little interesting trivia for you. Savior is not a title that Paul commonly uses for Christ. Obviously, he talks about Jesus as Savior, talks about Jesus bringing salvation, but the title, Savior and Lord, there's a specific reason he's bringing that here. Because Savior was the title that was ascribed to Caesar. And here in this colony of Rome, he writes these, these, these believers who are Roman citizens, and he says, we eagerly await the Savior. The Savior is not the emperor who brings peace to a a land and empire. The Savior is the one who is coming back from heaven. And when he comes back, for those of us in Christ, he is going to transform our humble bodies, meaning our bodies that now are frail and weak and prone to sickness, prone and able to die. He will transform them. He will alter them into total conformity with the body of his glory. See, church family, scripture's clear, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, that the trump is going to resound at that return of Christ. The trump will resound and we will see Jesus descending. And as Jesus descends, those who are dead in Christ, their bodies will be reconstituted, but not as the way they were. They will be transformed to be like Christ's resurrected body and they will be caught up And they will meet the Lord in the sky. And then if any of us are still alive and we're not of those who are dead, we will then be caught up. And and according to 1 Corinthians, in in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, our bodies will be completely and totally perfected and transformed. Never again to hurt. Never again to feel pain. Never again to grow old. In fact, the early church said if our our resurrection bodies are are to be like that of Christ's, then they must be the same age as Christ's body, 33. So for all of you who wish you were 33 again, congratulations. That's not a thus saith the Lord, that's just a thus reason the early church, let me be clear. But we will be transformed, and and how does this transformation possible? Because the very power of God that has the power to subject all things to himself, the very power of God that, 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 that conquers and destroys and defeats death eternally, the very power of God to which nothing can stand is the very power that will transform our bodies forever because the new heaven and new earth, the place our citizenship lies, it is a place that is physical and real. The current heaven, you die, your soul goes to be with the Lord, the body remains, but the the new heaven and new earth, the place you and I will reside for all eternity after the Lord returns and he dwells amongst us is both physical and spiritual. And church family, if you and I are gonna stand firm, there should be an eager, desperate longing for the return of Christ, for the transformation of our bodies. And not just that, but the subjection of all things is the power to subject. That word subject 
It means to force someone to submit, to place under, to put in proper order. And it says all things to Christ. There is not one thing that will be able to refuse the subjection to Christ. Church family, understand all things, sickness, famine, tyrants, murderers, pain, demons, death, all things, all people will be placed in total subjection because Jesus is the Almighty. And when he returns, the Prince of Peace comes as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And there should be an eager longing. Our ability to stand firm is tied to how captivated you and I are by his return, which means practically we got to understand what's coming. And we got to meditate on the truth of what is absolutely absurd assured. You see, he says, in this way, stand firm. Now, think of the inverse. How do you want to not stand firm? Let me tell you how to not stand firm. Take the attitude of immaturity. Continue to get caught up and tripped up by you, yourself, and I, and what you think you did wrong in the past, rather than dealing with with the Lord and moving forward. You want, to stay, you want to not stand firm, ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit and don't respond to it. You want to not stand firm, walk out of alignment from Scripture. You want to not stand firm, imitate poor examples who don't carry out their citizenship in heaven well. You want to not stand firm, long for all the earthly things instead of the return of Christ. You want to not stand firm, do those things. But if you are going to stand firm, church family, if we are going to stand firm, the answer is clear. We do it by holding the right attitude, the attitude of the mature. We do it by heeding the conviction of the Spirit. We do it by walking in accordance with the attained standard. We do it by imitating the faithful examples of those who carry out the citizenship of heaven well. And we do it with an eager longing to see Jesus step down out of that sky, transform our bodies, and make all things right. And here's the great news. God never commands us something that by his power cannot happen. You and I live in a world that is seeking to make us not stand firm, to trip up, to capitulate in every way. But here's the wonderful news, church family. It doesn't matter what this world, seen or unseen, throws at you or I. In Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we can stand firm. May we be faithful to do so. Let's pray. Father, it is no secret that we live in a world that is hostile to you. And it's no secret to you, Lord. You are so clear. It's not a surprise to you we face what we face. But Lord, what joy, what hope to know that as even as we see many who seem to capitulate and to walk away and to deconstruct in all these terms that have now become buzzwords to so many today, there is the ability to stand firm in And Father, may that be what we are as a church family, that we would be a beacon of light that stays firmly rooted, Jesus, in you. As we worship you, as we care for and love each other, and Lord, as we proclaim your glory to a lost and dying world whose end is destruction, who are in captivity to animosity to you, but Lord, whom you love. Father, may we be a church who stands firm by your grace, Lord. We look to you now as we respond. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.